Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm consulting with my professional meteorologist right now concerning tonight's festivities. And so just pay attention. We, we don't know what we're going to do. We may try to stick it out and push through. But if it looks like it's giving some heavy torrential uh, threatening uh, rain and lightning and all that jazz, we will probably postpone till tomorrow evening. But just uh, stay tuned and we'll let you know as far as that goes later on. Um, if we don't say anything, we'll probably just go ahead and have it. Amen. Uh, so I'm going to end up being in Matthew chapter 25 uh, this morning. I know most of you weren't here Wednesday, but Wednesday we talked about the parable of the ten virgins because what happens is uh, Jesus is addressing his, um, his disciples and they want to talk to him about the end times. They want to talk to him about what it's going to be like in the last days. And he starts uh, to teach them and he tells them different signs that are going to take place. And then in Matthew 25, he speaks three parables that are honestly about the church. It's about you and I and it's about what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like in that hour. Now Wednesday, we talked about the parable of the uh, of the of the ten virgins because essentially there were five wise and there were five foolish and they had enough oil in their lamps. The, the wise virgins had enough oil in their lamps when there was a cry at midnight that said, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. And he's speaking about the return of the Lord when he comes back, that there was the people of God that were supposed to be with him at the wedding supper, but there were five wise and there were five foolish. And it's interesting to note that there was only one thing, one indicator that, that separated the wise from the foolish. It wasn't education. It wasn't how smart they were. It wasn't any of those things. It was simply, did they have the oil? Did they have intimacy with God to where they had a relationship that they were filled with the Spirit of God so that they could keep that lamp burning? The, the, the point is, sometimes we ask God to do things. Don't we? we want God to move in our lives in power. We want God to heal, deliver, and save. And we ask God, God, send the fire, if you would, on my life. But see, we said Wednesday that God doesn't send the fire on a wick that doesn't have enough oil to keep the flame burning. Amen. And so what he's saying is the most important thing for us in our lives, Christianity is not just a set of rules that we're trying to adhere to or, or a set of doctrines that we just need to mentally assent to. Christianity, first and foremost, is a relationship with a living God, and Jesus wants such intimacy with you. Jesus wants a relationship. He doesn't just want you to... Look, when we show up on Sunday, this should be an overflow of celebration from the day-to-day -day relationship that we have from Jesus through the week that we've heard from Jesus so much during the week that honestly, when we hear a Sunday sermon, it just sort of bears witness and testifies to what God has been speaking to us in the secret place, in the closet during the week. This is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants from us. Good behavior, good activity, good works, everything that God would have you to do in your life actually flows from from a place of intimacy with Jesus. You can try all day and try harder to do better and be a better Christian. All of those things are produced because you have intimacy with Jesus. You have the oil in your lamp. He doesn't just want you to have the external structure. He wants you to have the oil in the lamp. Amen. He goes on to tell a couple of other parables. He tells the parable of the talents, and he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, which essentially talks about now that we are here on the earth and Jesus has ascended and sent the Spirit, how are we using the gifts and the callings that God has called us to, to use? But not only that, how are we working in, what he's, in the field that he's called us to work in in such a way that, that when we're judged, we're going to be judged righteously in the end by Jesus Christ? Amen? Amen. This is a little bit warm, if you don't mind. Thank you. So, uh, praise God, thank you. <clears throat> but as I'm reading through the second parable, the parable of the talents, I notice something maybe that I've not seen before. 
And, and I, I, I want to open that up because how we see Jesus and how we see God will actually affect how we steward the gifts that God has given us. How we see God in our lives, how we view God in our lives will affect how we steward the gifts that God has given us. And, and oftentimes the reason that we live in fear, if I'm being honest, I think sometimes we live in fear because we see God incorrectly in our lives. A lot of times we see him as angry, a lot of times we see him as careless or untrustworthy, or we see him as a far off, not, not wanting to be intimate with us. Maybe we've been through some pain and some sorrow, and we sense that he's not actually a God of comfort. It seems like I'm in pain, and, and so we get a distorted view of God, and the reality is, is that we are in spiritual warfare where the demonic is constantly trying to change your image of Jesus. He's constantly trying to get you to have a view of God that is not reflective of who Jesus truly is. And so when we truly understand God's love for us, I believe we truly effectively steward what God has for us in this world. We need to know God's love for us. The scripture says we love because he first loved us. Amen. Now I want to dive into this parable with that, with that platform remaining because, because what I notice in my relationship with God, I don't know about you, but the thing that I notice over and over again is God lovingly warns me he leads me, he corrects me, sometimes he gives me a gentle rebuke, but it is always in love. And even when I'm at my worst and I feel like I've failed and I feel like I can't go on anymore and I feel like I'm unworthy, when I go to the source and I have intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ every single time, he speaks a word of peace to my heart. He speaks a word of love to my heart. It's not that he doesn't correct me, but when he does, it is so filled with love, it transforms my view of him and I am released from the burdens that I'm currently carrying and it somehow enables me and empowers me to do exactly what he's calling me to do in that moment. And the problem is, is we get a wrong view of God. We get distant from God. Our intimacy gets a little bit weak with God. And so we start to view him a certain way and we get disconnected from him in that sense. Now, in Matthew 25, verse 14 and 15, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey... And so, basically, he's starting this parable by saying there is a man. This represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He calls his servants to himself. He gives one five. He gives another two. He gives another one, so, so to speak, right? Like, he's, he's giving them different gifts according to their abilities. And it says he travels into a far country. Now, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came among us. He, he demonstrated the kingdom of heaven. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He cast out devils. He, he, he revealed the kingdom of heaven on earth. Then he ascended after he died on the cross for your sin and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he ascended on heaven and he told his disciples, guess what, I'm going to send my goods back to you. And my goods are going to come to you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to deliver a certain measure of my goods to each one of you. And you are to walk in obedience and demonstrate obedience. And as you do, you will actually gain more of what I have given you so that there will be a return on my investment that I pour into you. Because Jesus had a plan to reach the whole world and it wasn't for him to stay here and do it as one man. It was for him to conquer death, conquer hell, conquer sin and conquer Satan and then ascend on high and give you his goods so that the body of Christ could spread throughout the earth and do his work. 
So he does that and he calls them. And the servants are you and I. And the talents refer honestly to a deposit that God is trying to extend into our life. If you read in, in First and Second Timothy, Paul talks about this good deposit. He tells Timothy over and over again. He said, Timothy, I want you to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Do you realize that God has deposited something into your life? God has deposited something into your life. And it's also interesting that when Paul addresses Timothy, he tells him what God has not given him, and he tells him what God has given him. He says he's given you the gospel that you have been entrusted with, and this gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that you can proclaim that Jesus Christ has come and died for the sins of the world, and people who are willing to repent of sin and believe and put faith in the message of the cross, it transforms who they are. It changes their heart. We have, we have this gift of the gospel that we can share with our brothers and sisters. But then he goes on to say, Timothy, guess what? God has not given you what? A spirit of fear. But what has he given you? He's given you power, he's given you love, and he has given you a sound mind. He's given you power to walk in the same anointing that Jesus Christ walked in so that you can proclaim this gospel boldly and honestly. Signs and wonders will follow it when you proclaim it. God will touch people's lives. People will be set free. You'll see God work miracles in people's lives. This is a reality. This is what he wants to do. And any religious spirit that says anything different is straight from under the world that we just said. And that mountain needs to be removed at the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. And see, we're actually fighting religious bondage in our culture and in our area. Because what we believe is that we're just supposed to adhere to some, some mental assent to some set of doctrines. And while the doctrine of Christ is something that we should believe and hold fast to, we believe in the power of God to work in people's lives. So that our faith does not rest only in the wisdom of men, but Paul said, in the power of God. And so I'm not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Because if we don't function from a place of love, we will function from a place of fear. Love compels us. And not only that, see, in our world we're attacked so, so often by the enemy that fear overwhelms us and we no longer have a sound mind. We function from a place of insecurities. We worry about who God is. And so we don't have those things. Let me tell you something. God has deposited to you the gospel. He has deposited to you the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He has given you power. He has given you love. And he has given you a sound mind. And any spirit that is telling you anything any different is a liar. Amen. So we want to walk in the goods that God has deposited within us. And so that he can get a return on his investment. Now out of the three servants, two of them reaped good results. But the last one did not. Matthew 25, 20, it says, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. See, both of them were conscious, conscious of the fact that their talents were not their own. They recognize, Lord, you, de you, you delivered this to me. This is something that has been given to me. The gospel has been given to me. The, the opportunity that I have to walk in the Spirit and to, and to pray for people and believe for you to work and, and to proclaim the gospel and for hearts to be saved, this is not something that I muster up on my own. This is something that you have delivered to me and you've given me a responsibility to steward it so that I might bring increase in the earth. Amen. And so then the servant who did not reap any results, he said this to his master in verse 24 it says then he who had received the one talent came and said lord i knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown some of you boys in here you hard man ain't you yeah. amen there jeremy is <laughs> reaping where you have not sown and gathering 
where you have not scattered seed. Now this servant indicts the Lord for reaping where he did not sow. And in some sense what he's saying is, Lord, you're trying to demand of me what's mine. This is my life. I get to choose what to do. Do you realize the very breath in your lungs came from the hand of the Lord? And here's the thing. We think that somehow if we steward and govern our own lives, we'll find joy or peace or happiness, and somehow God's trying to take this away from us. No, he says if you find life, if you find your life, you'll actually lose it. But if you choose to lose it for God's sake and the gospel's sake, you will actually find it, and in that you'll find purpose and fulfillment. He says this isn't your life, but see, he indicts the Lord as if he's trying to take from him something that is not God's in the first place. And I love what he says because it's very interesting. There's a lot of meaning to it. He says you read where you've not sown and you gather where you have not scattered seed can i tell you this jesus reaped where he did not sow because jesus reaped the penalty and the punishment that you and i deserved he did not sow any sin into the earth but yet he he reaped the lashes on his back he reaped the scourging he reaped the mockery and the shame and ultimately he reaped reaped the death and the consequences of our sin and he scattered where he did not he gathers where he did not scatter because the one who, who, who scattered was the devil. The one who scattered was Satan. And Jesus comes in to gather where there was a great scattering and he's reversing everything that is taking place. But there's even deeper meaning because what happens here is he speaks rightly about Jesus in that sense, but he gets his nature wrong. Because what does he say? He says, I knew you to be a hard man. Now, if you look up that Greek word, it's the word skleros, okay? And that Greek word, it means harsh, violent, stern, or get this, unyieldingly stubborn. Any of y'all know anybody that's unyieldingly stubborn this morning? All right, praise God. Unyield the Jimbo. Amen. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Jesus is harsh, violent, stern, and unyieldingly stubborn? If there's anything that describes Jesus, it is not those words. He is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind, he is compassionate. Let me tell you something else. He is also very powerful and he is also perfectly holy. But his power and his might and his sovereignty and his holiness, he always extends to broken humanity through the means of grace and peace and mercy and compassion. He doesn't deal with us violently and harshly and sternly in that sense. But see, what happens is oftentimes we get a view of God that causes us to kind of cower in fear from what God wants to have us to do because our relationship with Him is not strong enough to see Him for who He truly and clearly is. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. Now, I will say that, that honestly, in some ways, sometimes, have y'all ever had the Lord ask you to do something that you'd be like, Lord, that's just a little bit too hard. You ever had the Lord ask you to do something that's just like, you know what, Lord, I, them people are about half crazy anyway. Even if I do uh, witness to them or share the gospel, they probably ain't going to receive it. They're going to go to hell anyway, Lord. Won't you just let me sit in comfort and relax? Anybody, y'all probably ain't never said that out loud, but in your heart, uh, you've, you've thought that. I knew you to be a hard man. Lord, you're going to try to send me to some of them wild dudes down there to try to share the gospel with them and try to win them over and try to pray for them and try to love them when they don't deserve love. And I'd rather just be in my comfort zone. Amen. The Lord will call you to some hard and difficult spots. But let me tell you something. The Lord will never call you anywhere where he does not supply the strength and the anointing and the blessing and the favor and the open door to conquer it. 
And I'm not saying that everybody will respond exactly the way that you want them to respond, but I'm telling you that even if they reject the message of the gospel, when you go in the power of the Spirit, you return with great joy, knowing that you were just obedient to the Lord. And because you were obedient, there's a greater outpouring on your own life. Amen. So he calls us into these places, but the second way, see, that we look at this is, is, is like I said in the beginning. We start to view him as stubborn or harsh or violent, and Jesus is not that. But when you view God as harsh or stubborn or violent or trying to just be hard on you and is angry at you and frustrated with you, all of a sudden, it, rather than actually, here's what I've realized over the years is rather than trying to get people to feel bad about it, feeling bad about yourself, I don't know if it, has feeling bad about yourself ever actually encouraged you to do more? Now, i got to be honest with you, the Holy Spirit convicts you. He does, doesn't he? And sometimes I need a, a, a brother or a sister in my life to give me a rebuke and say, Clay, you, you, need, to, you need to pay attention to what you're doing here. You, need, you don't need to have that kind of a heart because sometimes the Lord brings love and correction. But if we stay in condemnation and we have a fear of God to where we're not entering into intimate relationship with Him and seeing His love for us, then we can't flow in His Spirit. We don't flow in His Spirit as we ought to flow in His Spirit. In verse 25, He says, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there what you have is yours. He is functioning from a place of fear and not love. And Honestly, there's a lot of times that we hide some things because we're functioning from a place of fear and not love. Would you agree with that? See, when John speaks about love, and he talks about love more than anybody in the Scripture, and he even calls himself, like he is John the Beloved was his nickname. And he says that we love because he first loved us. He says in 1 John, he says God is what? God is love. And when he looked at the life of Jesus, he saw something and he realized that when you see the love of Christ, you eradicate fear from your life. When you see the love of Christ, you eradicate fear from your life. That's what he understood. Because he watched Jesus for three years and he watched a man that was so full of love that he recognized that this man had no fear. He knew who he was in, in God. He knew that God was his father. He knew he had a mission from heaven. And even when he confronted the Pharisees, even when he looked death straight in the eyes, what John saw was that this man was not compelled. He didn't heal the sick because he wanted to be miraculous and, and make everybody look at him. Matter of fact, sometimes he would heal people and say, don't tell anyone. It wasn't about that. What he did was he flowed from such a place of love for humanity. The scripture says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not because God was so angry about sin or because God hated sin so much. Let me tell you something. God hates sin and there is a true wrath of God. But God does not function from that place first and foremost. Even his anger and even his wrath flow from a place of love. Everything from God flows from that place of love. And he poured out himself and he saw Jesus. The thing that compelled Jesus to go to the cross to die for you and I was nothing more than love. Nothing more than love. And then he calls us into this place and he says the same way that Jesus functioned from a place of love. Jesus even said to us, what did he say? He said, as the Father sent me out of love, now I'm sending you. And I want you to be compelled by that same love that is in my heart for you. That same love, let it be something that compels you to reach the world for others. Now, 1 John 4, 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment or punishment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And there's kind of two dimensions. If you read this in the context, he's actually talking about eternal judgment. 
And he says that in Christ, guess what? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you are clothed in his righteousness. And now you can have confidence on the day of judgment because you know that you will stand before God and your sins were placed on the cross, completely forgiven and washed away in Christ. Your sins cannot be judged twice. They were judged in the body of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, your sins have been put away. Amen. So you don't have fear of the coming judgment that the wrath of God will be poured out on you. Now, we will be judged in our bodies according to every deed, what we did, good and bad. And there will be eternal reward or there will be less eternal reward for the believer. The wrath of God still remains on the unbeliever. You understand that? And the wrath of God, we know, is essentially God handing people over to their rejection. If you say, I don't want God, you know what he says? Go ahead. That's the wrath of God, my friends. And it's the most horrifying thing in the world. But see, God functions from a place of love so that you do not ever have to experience the rejection of God. That he will receive you completely in Christ Jesus. But fear came in because of a wrong belief in God. I love... What Romans 8.15 said, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He's saying you didn't receive something from the old covenant where you see God as a, as, as a taskmaster master, and somebody that simply wants to enslave you. You didn't receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption where you have a new relationship with the Father and your spirit cries out, you are my Father God. You provide my needs. You love me. You want to comfort me when I'm down. You want to heal me when I'm sick. You want to be with me when I'm discouraged to lift me up. This is the kind of relationship that God wants to give us. And some of our fears, I talk to people all the time and they share with me their fears. How many of you, you deal with fear on a regular basis? It could be fear of getting old. It could be fear of not having enough, fear of losing someone you hold dear, fear of losing your own health. Fear of death is a huge one, something that Jesus has conquered. Fear of losing your finances or not, not having enough. could be a, a number of different things, but at the root of the Christian's fear is a wrong view of God. They don't see God as their provider. They don't see God as their healer. They don't see God as their protector. They don't see God as sovereign over all, someone that they can fully trust in, knowing that even if in this life, look, even if in this life I die, guess what? He raises me up again. I've got to trust in a God who owns my life, and I can entrust him to do exactly what he needs if I walk in obedience toward him. Amen. And so my life is surrendered fully to him in that sense because he is trustworthy. There's people that say, man, what this world needs is a dose of the fear of God. And I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of agree with them. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Like, well, we need a dose of the fear of God. Uh, there, there is no fear of the Lord. And I told somebody, I told them down there at Chad's Hope, I was preaching this week, and I said, you know, the fear of the Lord is misunderstood, and there's, it's a dynamic thing. It's, it's not necessarily being afraid of God in the sense that you're horrified. But listen, if God showed up in the room right now in full manifest glory, you'd probably be a little bit spooked. Amen. <laughs> what? Because he's just that holy. He's just that holy. He, he, he divvies out measures of himself to you that you can hold on to, that you can take in this life. If you stood before a holy God, it would, it would kind of freak you out a little bit. And, and the fear of the Lord is a healthy thing and when you understand it for what it is. Now, Jesus, if you, if you read in Deuteronomy, like it, it says you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, right? Now, Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 4, he actually quoted that same verse, but he said... Uh, you shall worship the Lord your God. So he turned the fear of the Lord into worship, right? 
Now, when you look at the fear of the Lord and you look at the worship of, of God, Old Covenant and New Covenant, they're essentially the same thing. Now, here's the problem with New Testament, or I should, I should say modern American churches, is we think of worship only as being what we do in Sunday morning when we sing songs. See, worship is way broader than that. And worship, at the end of the day, true worship and true fear of the Lord is unconditional obedience to the desires of God. You can write that down in your notes. Worship and the fear of the Lord in truth is unconditional obedience to the desires of God. So I come and I worship Him with my body and I worship Him with my song and I praise His holy name and, I, and He inhabits that. But guess what? I worship Him in that sense so that I may be filled with His Spirit to go out and give Him unconditional obedience to the desires that He has in my own life. And so that's the fear of the Lord. And it says the fear of the Lord is causes you to depart from evil. I told the guys at Chad's Hope, and let me circle back around, I'm all over the place this morning. I told the guys at Chad's Hope, I said, you know, I used to, when I was a little kid, I stole some cigarettes from a, from a store. If a, if a cop had been standing next to me while I was doing that, I would have been so afraid that I would have not have stole the cigarettes. Anybody amen me? See, when you recognize the presence of the Lord in your life, it's a holy presence and a holy awe. It's reverential. It actually changes your behavior because you realize the Lord is here with me. The Lord is here with me. Somebody said, well, you can't, do it. you can't say that in the church house. Can I tell you, friend, that the Lord is everywhere. Forget saying it in the church house. Don't say it in your bedroom, son. The Lord is there. And there's a reverence of a holy God. But can I tell you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love is mature wisdom. The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like for a kid, what they don't understand, there are things that I've had to instill fear in Naomi over in order to keep her safe. She has no idea why I'm doing it. She's two and a half years old. She don't get it. But I have to instill fear in her to keep her safe. But you know what? One day, hopefully, if everything goes well, she grows up and she realizes, my dad did that because he loved me. And then all of a sudden, she realizes my great love for her. And out of my great love for her, it actually does something in her heart where she says, I love that man and I want to please him. Man. See, in Scripture, what God does, He says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And throughout the Scripture, they saw that through the Old Testament, everything, the prophets, the law, the writings, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, the worship of God, reverential awe of Him was the beginning of wisdom. But it was all pointing us to Christ, which is the love and the fear of the Lord manifested incarnate. And when they saw love of God manifested, He said, you know what? All of a sudden, you reach a love that casts out all fear. It's just like a child coming into maturity. Just like a child that once walked in the fear of the Lord to try to keep his behavior correct, but then all of a sudden when he sees the love of God fully manifested, he says, with a love like that, how could I not love him in return? And now I don't just simply try to obey God out of external obligation, but I obey God because I'm in love with the one who loved me enough to give his life for me. You see the beauty of that? You see the beauty of that growth? So the fear of the Lord is a good and healthy thing, especially for a world that is diving off the deep end into sin. But it should lead them into a place where they see this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And they see, man, with somebody that loves me that much, how could I even desire such a thing? How could I even desire such a thing? And so there's an element of fear and reverential awe. But ultimately, 
This love is mature wisdom. And how we see God affects how we steward our giftings. You remember he said in verse 25, I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. And you've got to ask yourself, what are you hiding currently in your life in the ground? Because you have a wrong perspective of God. This is what I was telling them on Wednesday. It's like, I could tell you, you need to go out and reach the lost. You need to go out and you need to do this. You need to go out and do this. The first thing you need in your life is an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can, you can work for God your whole life and it amount to nothing if you don't know the Lord. The, 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 the end rebuke of all of these parables is, Depart from me, I do not know you. He wants to know you more than you can imagine. He wants to have intimacy with you more than you can imagine. And those gifts will flow from that place. But see, Jesus came to reveal a God of love and He said, He who has seen me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you look in the Old Testament at the Father, God the Father was always blessing. He was always forgiving. He was always uh, healing people. He, but He did it from a distance. Like, for example, in the, in the Old Testament, God provided for His people. If you remember, God rained down manna from heaven, but He was distant. He was in the heavens. And God healed lepers even back then. But you know what? The lepers had to go through a specific ritual of cleansing in order for the healing usually to take place. Or maybe they had to go through a prophet or through a middleman in order for the healing to take place. God forgave sins, but guess what? They had to go through a very dynamic ritual in order for those sins to be forgiven. There was blood of bulls and goats, and God was hidden back in the Holy of Holies where they could not get access to God. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and He says, you know what? All of those things were just schoolmasters that were leading you to the full manifestation and now here I am I'm the full manifestation of the kingdom of God of the love of God and if you've seen me you've seen the father and now the father wasn't far off all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he forgives but guess what he's right there with them when he forgives he looks them in the eyes and he says son your sins are forgiven you the father now is near He's demonstrating his love firsthand. He heals the sick and the lepers. And it's so interesting because he would heal the sick and the leper. He would heal the leper and he'd say, now go back to the priest. Go through the process like you had to. But know that ultimately the process is not what does it. I'm the one who does it. I'm the father. I'm, I am the process. Amen. That'll preach. I am the process. And he provides for them. He, he takes, just like man out of heaven, he takes five loaves and a couple of fish and he multiplies it and feeds it to the people and he sits down right with them. He breaks the bread right in front of them. He's there with them, loving them in the process because Jesus is not just the provision, right? He doesn't just provide, he's actually in the provision. And this is why it's so important when we worship, we understand that we don't, we don't just want healing, we want Jesus. He's the healer. We don't just want salvation or somebody to save us, we want Jesus because he is salvation. We don't just want deliverance. We want Jesus because He is deliverance. Jesus is freedom. He's the one that we truly long for. And oftentimes we get it mixed up and we pursue the things God can give us rather than the God Himself who is all of these things. So when Jesus came, He did the exact same acts of grace and He's still providing now through the power of the Spirit. But can I tell you this? Guess what? When Jesus was doing His works, the same as it was then, the same it is today, the Pharisees didn't like it. Religious people didn't like it. Because 
Now, they didn't have to go through the middleman. They didn't have to go to the religious people to get forgiveness of sins or to get healing or to get ministered to. They could go straight to the source. They could go straight to Jesus and experience exactly what they needed from the Father. And they didn't like it, so they sought to kill Jesus. One thing you've got to understand, though, is just like we read in the Gospel, all of heaven's resources are attracted to your need. Your need is actually your entitlement to His grace. Somebody said, well, you know, there's other people out there, man, that are suffering way worse than me. Yeah, there are. And guess what? He's got an overabundance for them and you. If you, you don't see anybody, you don't see people coming to It says that they would come, the multitudes would come, and as many as touched his garment, all of them would be made whole. There was an abundance for every person that come. At no point did Jesus say, oh, boys, I'm wore out. I got no more power left. Now, every now and then, don't get me wrong, he would drift off and he would go to be with the Father, but you don't see an instance of people coming to Jesus and there not being enough. When they came to him, there was an overabundance, there was an oversupply. The problem that we have is we have a lot of people, though, who are not needy, who are unwilling to say, I'm needy. Lord, I need your presence. Lord, I need your healing. Lord, I need you to deliver. And most of us walk and function in unbelief, and we seek the world's power to get things done in our own heart and in our own lives and in our own minds that honestly Jesus wants to do for you. Jesus wants to do these things. But we don't believe he has the abundance, and really we just sort of believe that this is actually just an external religion. And, and you know, we come to church, Clay, but we don't expect God to do anything. Amen. Y'all ain't even laughing this morning. We come to church, but see, the truth is some of us are needy. We're depressed, we're addicted, we're struggling, we're in bondage. And Jesus has everything that you could ever need. His supply is always greater than your need. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha the prophet visited a widow. And this widow cried out to Elisha for help because the creditor came and said, Look, your husband passed away and you've got a debt. And if you don't pay it, I'm going to enslave your children. It's a picture of Satan, right? The creditor comes to say, look, you've got a debt to pay, and if you don't pay it, I'm going to enslave you, and I'm going to enslave your children. And that's what the enemy wants to do. And Elisha shows up, and Elisha in the Hebrew, his name means God saves, or God is salvation. He is a type of Christ showing up. And Elisha says to the woman, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Let me tell you something. No matter what you have, you've got something in Christ. You may say, well, I ain't got much, Clay. I don't know if the Lord can use me or not. If you got just a little bit of a jar of oil, watch what he can do with just a little bit of a jar of oil. In Christ, you always have something. In verse 3, he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you've come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So what? The oil ceased. And just like we said, the, the, the creditor is the evil one, Satan, that comes to enslave our children. 
But see, Elisha, Jesus says, what do you have in the house? See, he has given us, he's, there's a deposit of oil that we have. And he's saying, if you are willing to shut the door on the world and get intimate with me and your family and say, no, we're not going to allow certain things into our life. We're going to shut the door on the creditor just for a minute. We're going to get along with God and take the oil that we have and begin to pour it out to God and to put it into the vessels around us. And if we pour that out, there is an unending supply. There is one small, small jar of oil that she has. she got a couple of talents. You know what I'm saying? But when she starts to pour out what she has, God causes an oversupply and abundance that fills every jar that is in the house that they've got until suddenly she said, we ain't got no more, and then it stops. As long as there are open vessels out there, God is willing to pour out. The question is, are we open? Are we open? Or have we put a lid on it and said, no, 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 Lord, I filled up with the world this week. I'm good. I'm good, actually. I feel, I feel completely up with the world this week. And, and you know what? I mean, son, I give it a little toot-toot on Sunday, you know, hallelujah. And I listen to the message. Amen. Y'all ain't feeling me this morning. I'm just trying to help you. I'm, I really am. <laughs> Uh, you know, the Lord, the last, the last month or so, man, he'd been getting in my dreams and everything, just trying to say, Clay, I want to pour the oil out on you. I want to pour it out on, on your church. I want to pour it out on people. I'm desperate for people to be in my presence. I'm desperate for people to be with me. I'm desperate for intimacy with you because I have something for you. If you will allow it to be poured into you and you will pour it out, I'll give more and I'll give more and there will be an overabundance, but you have to be willing to seek it. And you've got to take the lid off and you've got to shut the door on the world and you've got to Come into a place of intimacy with me. Because the creditor is wanting to enslave everybody out there. Look at what's going on in the world. And the only people that can bring people out of slavery is the ones who have oil in the vessel. It's the ones who are filled with the Holy Spirit who have shut the door on the world and said, God, I don't care if everybody thinks I'm weird. I want you and I want your presence and I want your power. Amen. And so he says, shut the door on it. And here's the thing, if you want to pour out, sometimes what you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start praying for somebody. You've got to share the gospel with your neighbor. You've got, to, you've got to go to a buddy. You've got to call a friend on the phone and invite them to church. You've got to start pouring something into another vessel. And as you pour out, as you go into the closet and you seek the oil in your field and you pour it out, guess what? The Lord starts a pipe, son, from heaven that just begins to pour the oil through because he's given you increase in the talents that you are now using. And the, and the talents that you're now putting to use. And when we see his love for us and we're compelled by that same love, we're open to receive it. When Jesus went into the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, I've got a lot of scriptures that I read this week, so just bear with me. Amen. Y'all good this morning? He went to his hometown in Nazareth and he stood up and he opened the scroll. And in Luke 4, which he was, he'd opened the scroll of Isaiah. And what we think, what we see is chapter 61, and he says this, he read it, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, if you read in Isaiah 61, does anybody know what the next verse says? It actually says, And the day of vengeance of our God. It says, And he closed the book... And he stared at everybody in the crowd. So basically he's saying, I'm here. I'm the one. And I'm here to heal the brokenhearted, set the captives free, recovery of sight to the blind, setting people oppressed free that have been bound for so long. 
And then rather than going on and reading the day of vengeance of our God, he closes the book and he stops at the acceptable year of the Lord because the acceptable year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee. It's the time when all debts are canceled and it's the time when his grace profusely abounds. You and I right now are not living in the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance will come when God sets all things right. But right now there is a day where the Lord is saying, I want you to come into a place where you understand that there is an outpouring available. I am here to minister to you. I'm here to heal your broken heart. I'm here to bring healing into your life, to bring salvation to your soul, to set you free from the oppression that's in your life. And he looks at the people in the crowd, and you know what they do? They reject him. And I'm telling you, in our lives, we reject Jesus on a regular basis, oftentimes. And they pushed him out of the synagogue, onto the brink of a hill. They were going to kill his hind end. And he says, y'all don't see it. I'm right here, willing to heal your broken heart, willing to open your eyes, willing to bring salvation, willing to set you free from your oppression. And you don't think you're needy. And you reject me. And he waited to the last minute. He let them get to the brink of the hill. And then somehow, miraculously, I mean, he's Jesus. You can't kill him unless he wants you to. He passes through their midst. I don't even know how that happens. It's like, we're pushing you. Oh, where's he going? I don't, how does this happen? Another miracle, really. He stopped short, though, of declaring the day of vengeance of our God. You know, there's one place where it says that Jesus was angry. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, it starts, he says, He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had, who had a withered hand. And if you read it in the Greek, it, it's, it, it, the man's hand became withered. So likely he had an accident, something happened to him, he had a withered hand. And so they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now here's what's so weird about the Pharisees is they knew that Jesus could heal. It was an, it was an unconscious indictment to the fact that he is the Son of God. We know this man can heal. We're just sitting here watching to see if he'll do it on the Sabbath so we can catch him. You know, in the same way, you know how as Christians, if you're a Christian in this house, like do you know that the world puts expectations on you? They, they expect you to live differently than them. Do you realize that that is an unconscious indictment that says, we actually believe it's real. <laughs> we actually believe they should live differently. Why? Because God is real. And God transforms lives. And we believe that they should live differently. It's just we've chosen in our own hearts to reject Him ourselves. We don't want that. And so Mark 3, 3, he, says, he said to the man with the withered hand, step forward. And I love this because Jesus never surrendered to religious bondage. Sometimes, you know, you, you know, when people don't believe like you or you feel like people pressure you from another direction or something like that, Jesus didn't say, well, you know, those Pharisees, they don't really like it when we pray for people uh, in the temple. Uh, let's just go over here for a minute, buddy. <laughs> he did not, he, he said, you know what, matter of fact, you see all them dudes right there, they don't like this, step forward. He's saying, step for, I don't care if everybody around me is in religious bondage. When God calls me forward, I'm stepping into it. I don't care if everybody around me thinks I'm weird. I don't, think, I don't care if everybody around me thinks I'm some kind of spiritual nut. I don't care if they say, man, we don't believe like that guy believes. I am believing the way Jesus tells me to believe. And when he says step forward, I'm going to step forward into the middle of it. See, this is what he's calling us to do. And I know that some people say, well, Clay, we just ain't with you on that. Good deal. We're still going to step forward. We love you. You can step with us if you want. But we're going to step forward into what Jesus has for us regardless amen 
And so he doesn't surrender to religious bondage. There's two types of people represented in this story. There's the needy and then there's the religious crowd. And oftentimes in a church service, that's what you have. You've got the needy and you've got the religious crowd. You've got the religious crowd who are, who, who are worried about externals that don't matter. They have no awareness of people's need. And nor do they believe that God would be present to touch people's need. Amen. Hey I'm preaching better than y'all shouting this morning. I'm telling you right now. But then there's the needy. There are people who actually realize, man, I need, I need God to move. And you, can I tell you this, whether you believe it or not, there's a desperation and a hunger in the heart and men of, hearts of men and women that when they want God, it pulls on heaven. When God sees that you actually want Him, something changes. See, Jesus would pass by all kinds of people. If the blind man hadn't cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me! I don't know if Jesus would have went over to him. You understand what I'm saying? There's an element of need and desire that stirs up God and begins to move him. And and, and we talk about a lukewarm church, and I'm not just talking about this church, but the church at large, a church that is just sort of satisfied. We're good. We don't really want more. And Jesus is saying, no, I need you all to step forward. I need you to realize your deep need. Do not step into the seat of the religious crowd and not recognize the need of the people around you and that there's a power available to flow. And you have to believe in such a way that, guess what? If, I, if we pray for people, guess what? God, God can minister to them. If we share the gospel with people, guess what? God can transform their heart. If we open our lives and our hearts to people to love them, God can move in those situations and God can minister powerfully to them. And so he looks around and says, Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They watched this man get healed, and they said, Let's go, we got to kill this guy. <laughs> I mean, how, the religious spirit can get people to think in some funny ways. To get people, to, they're, the Pharisees are anti-grace. They plot how to destroy Jesus. And here's the thing, though. It, I believe with all my heart that it pains Jesus' heart to not be able to give to us. I think it pains his heart when he sees people who aren't open to receive and aren't open to stretching forth their hand, aren't opening, open to stepping forward into what Jesus has for them and receiving it and saying, Lord, I need all that you have. And there's, see, there's one thing. Now, anger is not always sin. Sometimes you, the Bible says you can be angry and sin not, right, in Ephesians. There's one place, though, where the Scripture says that Jesus was angry, and it's right there in Mark 3, 5, where it says he looked around them at, with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And so Jesus was only angry when he saw the hardness of the religious people's hearts. That's the only time you see in Scripture where Jesus gets angry. When you talk about the nature of God, the personhood of God, it actually says about him, when, when God revealed himself to Moses, what did it say? It says that he is, not, he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger and abounding in compassion and loving kindness for to generation and generation. In Psalm 35 it says his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. But see, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father and there's only one time that Jesus gets angry in Scripture. And it's when religious people resisted what he wanted to do in bringing healing to another person. Amen, this is good. 
God teaches us, let me tell you something, God, God, God teaches us, God has corrected me time and time again. Does God correct you all? Like he, the Holy Spirit really messes with me on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? And if I'm not listening to the Holy Spirit in the day, for whatever reason, he'd give me a dream. He'd be like, you ain't going to get away from me, son. Like there's some people that are looking up to you like you preach on Sunday. I don't know if you realize this or not. They call you a pastor, bro. You got you to stay in check. So the Lord lovingly corrects me. He keeps me on track. And I thank God for His conviction. I thank Him for His loving and gentle rebukes. But man, He is so good to me. And He loves us all more than you can imagine. But see, God corrects us, but He will never... Here's what I've noticed. God doesn't correct us in anger. He doesn't correct us in rage as His children. He doesn't seek to pour out wrath on us. Matter of fact, Isaiah 54, verse 9 and 10 says it like this. It says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53 where it talks about how Jesus, he, he, by his stripes we are healed. It, it's a picture of Jesus' crucifixion. And God looks down and he says, this is the same to me as the waters of Noah. And you remember, when they, I, know, I know that they're trying to hijack the rainbow in our world today, but when you look at the rainbow, it is a covenant that God will no longer judge the earth with a flood. But he's saying, I want you to take it up one to the New Testament believer. And when you think about the waters of Noah and you see the rainbow, you need to look to the cross because all of the judgment that would ever come out on you was poured out on the cross. And he said, this is as the waters of Noah to me. And I've sworn, I don't have to swear, I'm God. I tell the truth with every word that I speak. But I've sworn that I will no longer be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. There is no longer any condemnation for you. I do not seek to punish you any longer because I've punished all of your sin on the cross of Jesus Christ and therefore my kindness and my goodness and my compassion will never depart from you says the Lord do you hear that this means that you can draw near to a God that even when you fail and mess up he loves you and extends his grace and it's not a grace that says oh just keep sinning clay it's a grace that corrects it's a grace that empowers but through the whole process it loves you and, and enables you to go and love other people and this is the relationship. He says, man, if you steward this gift and you, and you allow me to pour in these talents, let it flow through you, you will bring a return on the investment if you understand it. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now listen, if you're not saved, you do need to be afraid of the wrath of God. It is a real thing. Just like I said in the beginning, in the end, if you have not turned from sin and put faith in Jesus Christ, He does exactly what you desire. You say, God, I don't want this. I don't want to be a Christian. I want to rule my own life. He says, there you go. That's the wrath of God. And that's something you don't want to experience. But for us Christians, Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. And there's no more left for us. There's nothing but grace, nothing but mercy, nothing but kindness. And sometimes there's correction. Sometimes there's discipline. But it is all from a place of love. Amen. My last thought. You can come up to the music, Jeremy. One of the enemy's favorite tactics is to make you feel like God is angry with you, I think. 
A lot of times people come to me and they're like, I've just failed too much. I don't think God can use me. Let me tell you something. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. God still wants to use your life. But more than anything, he wants an intimate relationship with you. I'm not telling you to get up and go work for God today. I'm telling you to go and be with God today. And if you will be with God, he will produce his work through and in you. And it will become natural. And it will flow through you. People who are kind and loving and just ministering and serving, the reason they do it is not because they're workhorses. The reason they do it is because they're connected to the vine. They're in love with a God who loves them and it's flowing through them all of the time. And they don't get burnt out so regularly because they're connected to the source. And when they sense burnout, they shut the door and they go get alone with God and they receive that oil flowing once again and they're refreshed and rejuvenated in the love of God. You know, last week we read, we read that verse that said, it talked about in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? Yeah. He walks about as a roaring lion. And I think, I was reading Proverbs 19 this week, verse 12, it says, the king's wrath is what? It's like the roaring of a lion. But his favor is like dew on the grass. See, Jesus is the king. But sometimes when the lion roars, what Satan is trying to do is he's roaring, trying to mimic the Lord himself. He doesn't want you to hear, sense the conviction and love of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to sense the condemnation and rejection of God is what he wants you to feel. He wants you to feel wrath, rejection, condemnation. The Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction, peace, empowerment, love, compassion. All of these things. But when the enemy attacks you, he brings a tactic to try to push you away from intimacy with God. The one thing Satan is trying to do right now is to keep you away from that oil. He's trying to keep you away from intimacy with God. He's trying to give you a wrong view of God toward you. And God's just saying, you don't know how much that I love you. You don't know how much I want to be alone with you. You can't imagine the time that I want to spend with you. And Jesus is calling us all to that. And what I sense in my heart, man, is that God is, is, is so desiring to do something in all of our lives that we cannot imagine. But it starts, what we said at the beginning of the year, in the secret place with God, in intimacy. He said in the beginning of the parables, there would be five wise and there would be five foolish virgins. The five wise, they took oil in their lamp had intimacy with the Lord and their fire was burning when the darkest season came. The foolish treated their relationship with the Lord as, as, as not being that big of a deal and their intimacy with the Lord as not being that big of a deal. And they said, hey, give us some of your oil. But see, this oil that I have in my relationship with Jesus is not oil that I can give you. The only way you're going to fill your lamp is if you have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And I'm telling you, He loves you so much and He's so merciful, He'll take whatever you give Him. You give him one minute, he'll say, well, you give me two. You give him two minutes, he'll say, won't you give me an hour? You know what I'm saying? He just wants to be with you. And if you will be with him, he will pour his oil into your life, and you will see transformation. Amen? Won't you bow your heads with me this morning? I don't know where everybody's at this morning in your walk with the Lord. I know I've shared a lot this morning, but just be sensitive to what the Spirit is saying right now. If you don't know the Lord and... And like I said, the wrath of God is, is a frightening thing. It's not for believers. Those who don't believe in Christ and reject Christ, they, they will experience that. 
And so if you, if you have not received the Lord Jesus as your Savior and you've turned from sin and said, I need to put my faith in Him, I need to trust Him, I need to receive His grace and His mercy and His kindness and His compassion. If that's you here this morning, would you just, would you just lift your hand as an act of faith? Only, I just want to pray for you that the Lord would do His work in your heart. Is there anybody in here that would say, that's me? Anybody in here at all? I see one back here. Anybody else? I want to pray for that one. Would you all help me pray for that one? Lord, I pray for this man that's lifted his hand. And God, I pray in this moment that your love would overwhelm him. And Lord Jesus, as he comes to you confessing his sins and putting faith in you, I pray that you do a transformative work in his heart. And Lord, you fill him with your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you are drawing him by your Spirit because you love him. And so I pray you minister directly to him right now. And God, as a church body, we all confess our sins. Lord, we ask you to forgive us and to wash us in your blood. And Lord God, we pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Would you pour the oil afresh into all of our hearts? God, there's needs all over this building. And Lord God, just like we said this morning, the need is the entitlement to your grace. So I just declare on behalf of every person, Lord, we're desperate. We're needy people. We need your spirit. We need your presence. We need your healing. We need your power this morning. So would you come and minister to us all exactly where we're at? In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand to your feet. Let's take a moment here just to worship together and respond to the Lord. If you, if you need prayer, you can come up here and we would love to pray for you. You can pray at your seat. This altar is open if you'd like to come and kneel. But take a moment just to worship and respond to the Lord. And like I said, if you have a need this morning, I believe, like, like I said, it's, it's your entitlement to His grace and He wants to pour out into your life. So if you have a need, I, I, would, I would encourage you to respond. Just take a moment to respond to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.